Welcome to the one who says that every good and perfect gift comes from him. If this morning you arrive at this place shameful and embarrassed, welcome to the one who says there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If this morning you arrived at TCC discouraged, Welcome to the one who says there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And if this morning you, like me, are a sinner in need of grace, welcome to the one who, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace we have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Friends, this is good news. Welcome. Let's pray. Father, the beauty of the gospel is that regardless of how we limp into this place this day, your grace through Christ serves as an encouragement to us all. Thank you that we who are all sinners in need of grace can lift up our eyes again this Sunday to one who is rich in mercy. One who has seen our sin and loved us anyway. One who has not chosen to look the other way at our sin, but has stared at it fully, judged it fully in the person and work of Christ, and offered us forgiveness and hope. That gives us great encouragement this day. Great joy through Christ. And we ask that on this Lord's Day you would meet us and that you would encourage us by your word uniquely as your spirit can do and that you would prompt lives of obedience and worship to you as a result. We ask in Christ's good name. Amen. Mark chapter 10 is our text this morning. My name is Matt. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors, one of five pastors here at TCC. We are in a year-long teaching series through the book of Mark, so for many of you that this is your first Sunday, you're dropping in in the middle. Um, Finishing up really what is uh, several chapters together around a similar theme. We'll read uh, beginning in Mark 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. 
And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. If you've been with us for 2014, I know what should be playing in your mind at this point. I've heard this sermon before, right? I mean, in fact, I considered this morning just podcasting one that I've preached earlier. We could all sit in peace and calm, right? Because this has been a recurring theme in Mark's gospel. I mean, how many blind men have we encountered thus far that Jesus has made well? From This is one of the joys of expository preaching, just walking through books of the Bible, is that you can begin to pick up how the authors are highlighting certain themes that you would never get in isolation. I mean, any of us reading through the book of Mark could very quickly say, well, it's very clear the theme of the blindness of the disciples contrasted with Jesus' healing of blind people has been Mark's focus for the last three chapters. Here, we have the bookend of those, the last of the healing stories in Mark's gospel. And from here, beginning in chapter 11, Jesus and his followers will travel up a winding long path to Jerusalem, and there Jesus will be murdered, and the rest of the book of Mark will detail that story. So as Mark concludes chapters 8, 9, and 10 with the theme of blindness contrasted with sight, I want you to imagine with me this morning three different scenes, three different ways of looking at this story. And perhaps your eyes and your minds can drift towards the text as you reflect on uh, putting yourself in the story. That's what I want to try to do for us, is help us embed ourselves in the story. Imagine first with me that you are a person in the crowd here this day. We see that this is clearly a scene that plays out publicly. And imagine with me that you're a crowd and you live in Jericho, that Jericho, one that if you're familiar with your Bibles, you know that this place has some pretty stark condemnation and judgment prophesied by the Lord, Joshua 1.6. When this city is destroyed on the taking of the promised land, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up the gates. 1 Kings 16 tells us that years later this happens, that someone sets up, resets up the city, and the price their sons. This curse that God has leveled against the city seemingly lives on in Jesus' day. The city is downcast, discouraged. Seemingly the curse of God lives on, and Jesus shows up in that city. Not just to that city, but that Jesus. This Jesus is one who has been building quite a reputation for himself. People are flocking to him. And when he comes to this city, the Messiah who is to come, comes to this city under God's judgment, who is there to greet him? Your famous town blind beggar. A no-name to be exact. All we have recorded for us in the scriptures is Bar, son of Timaeus. 
This must have been his name. He's the son of Timaeus, a no-name boy that's simply addressed by his family name. And he's sitting by the road, the prime place to sit and watch and catch the travelers who would enter the city, moving in and out. And imagine with me for a moment the blind beggar. You can't ask as a blind beggar for a handout quietly, can you? There's no way to kind of pull someone aside and say, hey, could you help me out? What do you have to do as a blind beggar? You have to yell, hey, you, can I, can I have something? But this time, the yell that you hear from your town blind beggar is different. The tinge of desperation is still clear, but this time he yells at a person, and he does it in reverential respect. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And now imagine that you're one of Jesus' disciples. You've been traveling with Jesus for some time now. You're hot and weary from the journey, and not only are you physically defeated, but mentally you're done. Hopelessly and downright confused. You signed up for a team that was going to usher in the kingdom. Your dreams of power and privilege and rule and reign seem to be not what's on Jesus' mind at all. All Jesus seemingly can talk about is his impending death. Three times in the scene leading up to this story, he's told you that he's going to die. The first time, our boy Peter calls him out, right? No, you're not, and this does not end well for Peter. He gets called Satan by Jesus. Not exactly a day you want to relive over and over again. So on the second pass, in Mark 9, when Jesus says that he's going to die, you keep your mouth shut. Well, not, not exactly you keep your mouth shut. What you decide to do as a good disciple is rather than being called Satan, you just talk with your boys on the path leading up to the next stop about who's going to be great in the kingdom. Okay? So you don't get called Satan this time, but the problem is once you arrive at the next location, Jesus knows what you've been talking about. So he busts you says, boys, why are you talking along the way about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? Jesus did, does what would become a common theme for him. Every time you, as one of the disciples, start talking about greatness, he goes and finds this little kid and says, if you want to be great, become like one of these. And that, at least as a kid, makes a little bit of sense. But other times he says things that are downright foolish. If you want to be great, take up your cross absolutely insane. Surely the disciples are not going to be the ones on the cross. It is God that's going to rule and judge, and the other people are going to be the ones that are wiped out. Greatness and the cross don't seem to mix. If anyone's going to the cross, it's surely not the disciples. And now you arrive in a new city, and you're confronted with a blind no-name. Come on, bro. We've got bigger things to do. Let's just, and this is what they do, tell him to be quiet. And they did, over and over again. Many people telling him to, be, to stop. He is clearly just a nuisance to the master. But here Jesus goes again, blowing up your expectations of the Messiah. Not just as he proceeded to talk about being a servant, but now he exemplifies that by stopping to do something that perhaps other people had thrown a hand out but the Messiah would never stop to do something like this. 
Honestly, it seems like he is out to make a point. He keeps telling us, the disciples, that we're blind, and then he keeps going and healing blind people. I don't have to be a rocket scientist to get Jesus' point, right? Now imagine with me, third scene, that you're this blind guy. Who knows how long you've sat in this same place, day after day, crying out for help. Everyone that sees you crying out for help assumes that something's out of place. The common assumption is that physical suffering is attributable to your sin, right? So you're sitting out publicly yelling out, and everyone assumes that not only are you physically broken, but you're spiritually broken. The thing that you would love to do as a blind beggar is run and hide and not have to face the scorn of sitting on the side of the road crying out day after day, but you can't do that. You have to eat, and the only way you eat is if someone helps you, and the only way someone can help you is if you go out day after day and sit by the main road where everybody can see you and yell at everyone passing by. And for this, you've gotten quite a reputation. It's not a good one. Everyone wants you to be quiet, and you're known as the son of Timaeus. You certainly can't run and hide now because you've heard Jesus is coming. It's like the first century game of telephone played out. The message has reverberated down through the town. The miracle-working Messiah is on his way. And people are beginning to say that this one is the son of David, the promised Messiah who would usher in God's peace and healing. And so this time, you, uh, you muster up all the energy you've got left to yell out, to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then someone comes to you and says the unthinkable. The Messiah is calling for you. And so you get up and leave, and you do it in such a hurry that you leave your cloak behind. A fact that years later still stands out to Peter that he recounts it in this story that Mark records. He leaves everything to run to Jesus. And Jesus asks you a question that perhaps you've heard a hundred times. What do you want me to do for you? But typically, the question comes from the lips of a bothered passerby. What do you want, boy? What can I do? What can I give you to get you out of my way so that I can move on and check off my religious do-good list? But this time, the question is flavored with a different tone. What do you want me to do for you? Quickly, your mind races between two competing answers. The most obvious answer to Jesus' question is, I want you to give me some money so that I can take care of my needs, right? This is the answer you've given each time. You wouldn't ask a random stranger to give you your sight back. It makes sense, but this time, what if this one really is the Messiah? If he is then to say, give me some money to help meet my needs is a really low bar request. So, as an act of outright faith, you set your sights really high, and you give an answer that would only make sense if this were the Messiah. I want to see. And in a flash of grace, your eyes are opened, and you see clearly for the first time. Never imagined the day would come, You thought you would be begging by the road forever. And it seems too good to be true. Jesus says something to end the scene that almost makes you chuckle. Blind guy, go your way. Go my way? I'm not going anywhere. I'm following you. 
And that's what he does. Wherever you're going, I'm going. You saved me. And so together with the disciples, you follow Jesus on the path to the cross. A blind, no-name beggar that now sees more clearly than the disciples. Now I want you to imagine a fourth scene with me. Imagine you are 2,000 years removed from this story and you claim to follow Jesus. Doesn't take a great deal of imagination, right? That's where many of us sit. Most of us are not physically blind and we are reading a story that has become quite familiar to many of us. Sure, the names and the characters have changed, but the facts seemingly remain the same. What are we to do with this theme of blindness and the call to follow Christ? I'm going to give you three points of simple application this morning that are not only true of this story, but are true of the macro theme of blindness and sight that we see in Mark's gospel. Three very simple points of application for all of us Idea number one, you and I can't see without grace. You and I can't see without grace. Apart from Christ, you and I are all blind to him and to his work in the world. We're told, this is true in Paul's letters in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that in their case, those that are apart from Christ... The God of this world, this being Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. So if you are here this day and you are apart from saving faith in Christ, you don't know Jesus. Whether you know it or not, you are blind. And God's work is to grant sight to those who are blind. Psalm 146, 8. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And the Lord loves righteousness. This is what God does to bring salvation to his people. He, as in, an, in an act of his grace, gives sight to blind people. This point is illustrated most clearly in the life of Paul in Acts 9. Familiar with the story, right? Paul breathing murderous threats, killing the church, wreaking havoc. God arrests him on his way, blinds him. Again, our image is clear. And in Acts 9, 17 through 19, they came and laying his hands, Ananias laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the work of God in bringing salvation, that something like scales fall from our eyes, and we see clearly, not because we are good religious people, but solely as an act of his grace. This is why when you hear people discuss profound moments of transformation in their lives, they're often going to struggle for words to describe it. I didn't hear anything new. I didn't really see anything new, but something happened 
and I saw clearly for the first time. It was like the story of the gospel that I had heard recounted over and over again. It just clicked in my brain. It just made sense. Something, I don't know what it was, but something changed in my mind and my heart, and I now wanted to love God. I wanted to turn from my sin. Often, this will happen from a place of pain. God took something away that I loved, and it was like I was awakening from sleep. I looked back and was like, 10 years, I've, I've been in like this dream world. I've been blind. And now this thing that I love is taken away, and I'm starting to awaken. My senses are coming alive to my need for God. This is how God works in the life of his people. He takes away blindness and grants sight. And if you're here this morning and that scene is illustrative of your story, let me invite you to Christ. That that feeling, your feeling of being awakened on the inside, of maybe for the first time desiring to know God, desiring to hear from him in his word, actually when these songs are sung, your heart kind of coming alive, that is an act of God's grace. He is awakening your heart to your need for him. By all means, do not turn a blind eye to that. See that as a gift of his grace, and please let someone know. We would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to know and love God. You can do that by seeing any of the pastors any Sunday that we gather. Before, after the service, we would love the opportunity to share with you. We've also made it easy for you on the cards that are on your seat. You can write notes, not love letters to one another, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. You can let us know how we can play a part in your life. If you're here and you're like, Matt, I have questions. I would love someone to meet with. Please write that. Indicate that on the card. We get those every Monday in the office, and the pastors follow up with those requests. If you're here and you feel like your heart is being stirred to love God, please let us know. But even after this, and the head bobs should resound around the room, even after the scales fall from your eyes, you're awakened to your need for Christ, sin still has a strange way of rendering you blind over and over again. And I'll be the first to admit, it is incredibly frustrating. That everything seems to devolve over time. Without active work, the sight that I'm granted by grace diminishes. I don't naturally see Jesus rightly, and I certainly don't see my sin clearly. I have massive blind spots. And without a gift of God's grace, I will continue as one who has had the scales removed to grapple around in darkness. And so, idea number two, if vision is granted as a gift of grace, idea number two is you can't see without Jesus. 
This is the point of Mark's gospel. This isn't some random miracle worker, but it is the incarnate Son of God. He is the one that opens eyes. He makes blind people see. He does it throughout his ministry. John 9, it's a very familiar story. Him opening the eyes of a blind man, and this man and his frailness saying, I I don't know much. All I know is I was blind and now I see. He gives by virtue of his person, the incarnate Son of God. He is the one that can grant sight. And so church, as we gather this morning, let me remind you that there is no person in this room capable of giving you sight. There is no job that is going to dig you out of the doldrums of your blindness. There is no relationship in this room capable of delivering sight to blind people. Only Jesus can provide sight. And let me encourage you that he wants to give you sight. He wants you to see clearly, to see his grace and your sin and long to love him deeply. I'm afraid we are often guilty of the same tension that I described in the life of the blind man, of asking Jesus for way less than what he desires to give, of coming to him for a handout of God's gifts rather than to receive the lavish grace that is offered through restored sight. Let me remind you, church, that your deepest need this morning isn't for him to get you out of the hole that you've dug for yourself through a new job, money, college graduation, any of that. Your deepest need is to see him rightly. And let me discourage you, church that often the way of seeing him rightly is going to be painful. Seeing clearly always is. You get used to not seeing clearly, you get used to your sin, and it's really hard to see. It's like walking outside on a really uh, bright day. Catches you off guard, it hurts. You may have noticed that uh, I started wearing glasses a couple of months ago. Um, This was because I consistently drove down the interstate and could not see the next exit sign. And my wife said, something has to change. And I'm asking her, she's like, you drive a lot without me. What do you do when you're driving without me? But something happened when when I got glasses. Picked them up and I put them on. Knowing that my vision was out of whack and I needed to see clearly. But when I started to wear them, I got headaches every day. I mean, every day, it's like, man, I don't, I don't like seeing clearly because I had gotten used to seeing poorly, and so right vision hurts. The same is true for all of us. We get used to bad marriages. We get used to starving ourselves on the scriptures. We get used to lackadaisical church attendance. We get used to prayer lives that are non-existent. And when you start to put glasses on, it stings. It hurts. 
And for that reason, most of us run back towards the safety of seeing poorly. And so, idea number three, how do you force yourself to see? If seeing is a gift of grace and it only comes through the person of Jesus, but I'm so prone to settle for bad eyesight, idea number three is you cannot see in isolation. You can't see without grace, you can't see without Jesus, and you can't see in isolation. Seeing Jesus rightly is something that can only be done in community of other people. Other people who see equally poorly in places, who see well in places. Jesus is too glorious for you to see alone, and your sin is too blinding for you to be able to address alone. Jesus is too glorious for you to make sense of on your own. It's just too big. You're never going to comprehend it. Got to have other people. And your sin is far too entangling for you to get out of on your own. It's like the tag on your shirt that you forget and it's on the back. You can only see if someone from the outside comes and says, you left the tag on your shirt. For that reason, you must, we must, actively pursue sight. And this is where I want to lean us into, into us as a church. Relational passivity in this room will always lead you to places you do not want to go. Isolation is deadly. It breeds blindness. And so, at TCC, our goal, like we were to put a bullseye on it, the bullseye is for you to see Jesus clearly and worship him totally. That's what we want to happen. We want all of you to see Jesus rightly, your lives to be captivated by that, and you to worship him the totality of your life. And then that you would serve others in doing the same. So we would phrase that something like, we want to multiply disciples to God's glory. We want you to be a disciple who sees rightly and follows totally, but we don't want you to do that, this introverted selfishness. We want you to do it and be caught up in the process of helping others do it. So each week, we have three primary venues that this is going to happen as a church. One is here each Sunday morning. A weekly corporate gathering of the church where we should see diverse groups of people who probably have absolutely nothing in common with most of the other people in the room who have committed to love and care for one another to steward their time, talents, and treasures in order to show the world that Jesus is the greatest thing imaginable. And that every Sunday we would gather in this place to proclaim that truth. should sound like a resounding gong week in and week out. Jesus is worth your life if we're doing this well. That's why we are going to sing songs that esteem Christ 
that try to put the scriptures on display. I don't know if you noticed this morning uh, the songs that we sang. One was exactly the words of Ephesians 2. For us, musical style is not really that important. What is important is that we sing and affirm Christ. It's why we're committed to expository preaching, to just teaching through books of the Bible, not solely for our academic bolstering, not so we feel good about ourselves as Bible thumpers, but rather so the Word of God can transform us. That we could see the Scriptures rightly, we could see how they all piece together, and that that progressively, over time, just like you would do with a little child, that you do the same thing week in and week out, over and over and over again, and that the cumulative effect of that is life transformation from us. And so that's what you'll get week in and week out. Clear teaching through passages of Scripture, books of the Scripture. We're going to finish out the Gospel of Mark this year. And at the first of the year, we're going to do something that we haven't done yet in the life of our church, but I think we're ready for it. We're going to take a couple of months and uh, attack some tough questions that our culture is asking. I feel like as a church, we need to address questions related to gender and homosexuality and politics and um, marriage and divorce and remarriage. So we're going to take seven or eight weeks and tackle those specifically focusing on a passage of Scripture and walking through that and highlighting how we as a church should think rightly about some of the issues that are confronting us as a people. And this is why committing to a church matters. Most church leaders will tell you right now that the average for them uh, with their members is two to three years at any one local church. For some, that is because job moves. We live in a different world that moves us around very often. Unfortunately for most, that is because of consumeristic tendencies that lurk in our soul. If you're around any one church for long enough, you're going to find its warts. And the assumption is that the church down the street does it better. Friends, in two to three years of consistent gathering with the church, you don't even have enough time to get to know people, much less the amount of time to work through any degree of conflict that's required to practice the one another commands in the Scriptures. I mean, think about the church in Corinth. Think about the, think about the reasons you would have for leaving the church at Corinth. It is an absolute wreck. And yet nowhere in Paul's letter does he say, leave the church. He says, stay and fight. He doesn't say, go down to Second Baptist down the street. They got it figured out. No sexual perversion there. He says, commit, lean in, and see the gospel transform people. If you're here this morning and you're a college student, let me speak directly to you. This is why committing early and often to a local church is of primary importance. Don't believe me. Find someone in this room that's getting ready to graduate or has just graduated, and they are going to tell you over and over and over again that they wish they would run back the clock and commit to a church when they were freshmen and plug in deeply, be loved deeply, be known deeply, and most of them are going to tell you, and this is going to mess up your bubble, most of them will tell you that they would have rather quit a whole lot of other Christian organizations 
so that they could do just that. That they were too religiously busy to actually be known. So commit. If you are here and you've been checking out the church, tonight is a great opportunity for you to commit. We'll be here from four to eight as pastors doing our next membership class. We're going to trust God and we're going to do a membership class about every five or six weeks around here because we're going to trust that God's going to keep bringing us people who need to commit to a healthy church where they can be known and know others. You can sign up today. You can do that online. Don't do it on your smartphone right now. All right, give me about five or seven more minutes. Then you can register. Uh, You can tell Hugh, myself, Toby, one of the other pastors, after the service, you can put it on the card. We would love to see you tonight. The second area that this happens is through our community groups. Mid-sized groups that gather throughout the city in geographically intentional locations. Thankfully, a few years into the church, and I think we have the city surrounded now. So hopefully you can find a group that's relatively close to where you live, work, and play. And these groups are going to provide for you things like connection to the body. Here's, Here's the deal. You can come for a year to this gathering and know nothing but the back of somebody's head. And people do it around our city all the time. If you want a church where you can stare at the back of people's heads, there are churches in our city that will do it far better than us. If you're coming to consume the Sunday performance, I'll tell you some other places you should go. We are going to produce disciples through relational discipleship where you know some other people. You're in their lives. They're talking to you. You're confessing sin. They're confessing sin. You're fighting together. That can only happen outside of this room. Now, hopefully the spillover effect is in this room. Hopefully you're sitting next to some people that you're like, we've grown to love them, to know them, but this is not the primary place that's going to happen. Those groups provide connection. They provide care for us. This is a beautiful thing about a church that's functioning well. You don't suffer alone. And you're not overly dependent on your pastors when you are suffering. We want to be there. This is not shirking our responsibility at all. We want to be there to celebrate, to grieve with you. That is a responsibility of the pastors, but it is not our sole responsibility. We all have the responsibility to care for one another. And this can only happen in deep connection with one another where you know and are known. Connection, care, and lastly, mission. I'm a terrible Baptist preacher this morning, unalliterated fashion. Connection, care, and mission. That we can go on mission to love and serve together through these community groups. We have groups doing everything from elementary school service to after-school care to those struggling with addiction to adoption and orphan care. This provides a means for us to live on mission together. And then lastly, and honestly one of the hardest ones, is clusters. This is what we hope to be a hallmark of the life of our body that we would not ask you to come to a hundred things around the church, but rather we would free you up to scatter and commit to one another. Clusters would be defined as one-on-one or perhaps one-on-two pairs, or whatever you would call three, trios, 
that commit to meeting together at least two times per month, ideally once a week, in order to study the Bible, to pray together, to fight sin, and to encourage one another towards holiness. So let me say that again. Clusters would be described as pairs of people who commit to at least a year of meeting consistently together for the sake of studying the scriptures, praying, fighting for holiness. This cannot happen in small groups. It hopefully is a spillover into your small groups, but the reality is for you to really work towards conformity to the image of Christ, it's going to take an intense boot camp where you are together with another person over an extended period of time where they can know your sin. Like, let's, let's take one of the, I mean, you can see certain sins. You're fighting with your wife and you guys don't like each other. That kind of has a spillover effect publicly, you can see it. If nobody else in this room could see when you're being prideful, you are not close enough to your church. If no one else in this room can see when you're being lazy and has the spiritual authority to call you on that, you are not close enough to your church. We can mask that all day in this size setting, right? So someone takes the responsibility to pursue someone else and sets up a time to make sure that a consistent commitment happens. And over time, the desire would be that that would multiply. So I would meet with someone... We would talk about life and conformity to Christ. And at the end of a year, at the end of 18 months, that person would be able to take someone else and take them on the same spiritual journey. The dream would be that we would have 75, 100, 150 people who had committed to take spiritual responsibility for the life of someone else in this body. That only happens if you take the responsibility to come out of isolation and into community. Two ways we're going to try to help with that process. One is we've written a game plan for you when you meet together. Because what we found is in our first couple years as a church, many people were like, man, I want to make disciples, but I don't really know how. We have attempted over the summer to provide you a tool to help you know what you're doing when you're meeting together. And we have the church-based eHarmony system working, all right? If my responsibility is to equip you for the work of ministry, then that means I need to spend a good bit of time preparing to preach a good sermon on Sundays, but I also need to spend a lot of time helping facilitate disciple-making in the body. So I have uh, on my sheet, my, uh, let me find it, I have on my sheet my eHarmony profile, all right, where I've got names of people listed that are coming together, that are committing, that's it. That's my eHarmony, all right? That's what your pastor does. He doodles relationships, all right? To help facilitate disciple-making in the body. So you have in front of you uh, cards on your seat, and we're asking you to help us with that process. There's no way I can do that with 300 people. Absolutely no way. Some of you have already told me on email, I'd love to disciple somebody. Some of you have said, I'd love to meet with somebody consistently. Many of you have said beautifully, match me up, Matt. Whoever you want to put me with. The dream would be, if you walked with Jesus for any length of time, that you would begin the process of taking responsibility for others. And the result should be the opposite of our spiritual eyesight. If 
God is a gift giver through grace, which he is, right? If Jesus is the one that gives us sight, and he is, right? So if we come together, he gives grace, we esteem Jesus, and we together fight to do that, the opposite effect should happen. We should build a church that sees their eyesight progressively grow. That over time, we would see Jesus better. That over time, the sin that used to rattle us, we would see it, we would repent and turn from it and flee to Christ. That our celebration and richness would not fracture into relational disharmony in the body. That so often happens, but rather we would grow to love one another and esteem Jesus more. That is our goal, that we would train our eyes to focus on him and that we would do it together. If you're new with us, we invite you into our community. If you are here and you're sitting as a passive bystander, we invite you to get in the game. We need you. Look around. We need you. And we long for the day when Jesus is esteemed clearly and rightly here, where we can all say, I'll leave my cloak, I'll follow him. And we can run after that together. Let's pray. Father, we've said so often through this series that we need your grace to protect us from assuming that these stories don't apply to us. We are all blind beggars. Every one of us. And we need your grace. We need to see Jesus, and we need him to give us sight. We know that your desire is to do that, but we also know that our sin builds walls around us. We don't let that happen very easily. We ask that you would crush those by your grace this morning. We pray that you would put us out on the side of the road crying out, I need mercy. Protect us from our pride that says we'll sit inside and scramble for leftover food. God, would we be bold? Would we be needy? And would you give us sight? We ask that for the sake of Christ. Amen.